as Pastor Smith has already announced, in two weeks, all the offerings collected on that Lord's Day will go toward helping brethren financially with their responsibility to see that their children get a good Christian education with a particular focus upon that education which comes through Trinity Christian School. Now, over the years, in conjunction with that uh, Offering, there have been sermons that were preached uh, on Christian education, the Bible's teaching on aspects of parental responsibility, as well as matters relative to the benevolence and to benevolence and bearing one another's burdens in this particular area. Now, this has been done to help each of us, that is, these sermons, make that decision about participating in that benevolence gift. And as was mentioned, this year is no exception. Before we take a moment to pray, let me just read a quote to set the stage for what we will look at this morning. One educator wrote, In an age of relativism, how can we teach our kids to know and articulate the truth? In an age of shifting morals, how can we teach our kids to recognize the act and act upon goodness? In an era of fast food restaurants, prefabricated buildings, and scream music, how can we teach our kids to recognize and create beauty? The answer is to provide excellent models of truth, goodness, and beauty throughout our school days. Well, let's ask the Lord to help us as we consider these matters this morning. Heavenly Father, as we've read this quote, as I've read this quote, and we've considered these things, we live in a world which is truly far from you and moving at breakneck speed away from you. And we feel the consequences of that upon us on a daily basis. At the same time, Lord, we know as we've sung and as we've been exhorted from your word, there are a multitude of sins within our own hearts which would make this coming to your word, if not useless, at least a little benefit or possibly even that which is unacceptable to you. Forgive us of our many sins. Deliver us from all pride, deliver us from all self-confidence, preacher and hearer alike, that as we take up your word and consider this matter of educating children, that you would guide and direct us according to your holy truth. We plead in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. These three characteristics uh, came up on a number of occasions in Google searches. Uh, everybody does now to try to figure out exactly what everybody's thinking. But uh, these Google searches came up with the, this, this triad of truth, goodness, and beauty. And if you do a Google search on that, you'll find a number of places I wouldn't encourage you to go to uh, because they're not necessarily coming from a thoroughly biblical vantage point. They may be coming from a slightly different vantage point, but nevertheless, these three principles uh, kept coming up in terms of marks of a good education. And I'm going to say these are three marks which ought to, to mark every good Christian education. And so I have three points this morning, and they're very simply this, truth, 
goodness, and beauty. Truth, goodness, and beauty. The three characteristics that should mark a good Christian education. Truth is the first. And that seems rather obvious, but it is uh, more and more today, uh, our, our, our culture is characterized by this question that Pilate asked, what is truth? Uh, people don't know what the answer is anymore. As the quote that I read earlier, we live in a world which is pushing toward relativism uh, and seeking to get to where even truth is relative, not just morals, but truth itself is relative. However you feel today is what you are. Well, if there isn't anything more relative than that, I don't know what is, but that's what we're being told. God is very concerned about truth. We find that every time we come to the church on every Lord's Day, right? That we, we come to a book which we believe is the Word of God, that God has spoken to us truth. And we have been particularly concerned in recent days with the truth that we find in those early chapters in Genesis. Foundational truths for all of life. When we come to a good Christian education, one of the dominant notes should be truth. We shouldn't be lying to our students. We shouldn't be uh, misleading them. We should be giving them truth. And that goes for at least two different categories of the educational process. And I'm going to put all of education under two heads, right? Now, I know there are three R's, but I've got two heads. And the one is Truth according to science or truth in science, and the other is truth in words. In science, I'll include mathematics and that type of thing as well, but we should see truth, right? And, and so when we come to our Bibles, what was the foundational truth that we should say should govern our thinking about the world? It's that God exists. And so our Christian education of our children should have this as a dominant fact. If you're going to teach them truth, you've got to teach them about God. The God who exists behind everything. The God who created everything. So all origin comes back to the fact that God created it. If anything exists, it's because God created it. And God determines the order of everything within that created. We saw that. We clear back in Genesis 1. If you have your Bibles open, just remind you what we saw there, that God is a very orderly God, and he, he took one day at a time, and he created various things on those various days. Day one, he created light and separated it from darkness. Day two, he created the expanse, the waters, and separated the, the waters above from the waters below. In day three, Three, he created the waters in their place and the land in its place and then caused the land to bring forth vegetation. He's in a very orderly uh, motion and, and the, the, the writing of this is, is very orderly and it's, it's done to tell us he created these spaces as one man put it and then he filled the spaces. The land brought forth vegetation, the air brought forth birds, the water brought forth swarming creatures, creatures that swim in the earth, and the land brought forth then creatures that uh, walked, living creatures, and eventually man. God determined the order of everything and stands behind the order of everything. And so everything is telling us God exists. And so our education is, if you were at the uh, Trinity Christian School banquet last year, we heard a sermon on Psalm 19. 
And that sermon opened up the fact that the first six verses of Psalm 19 tell us about the source of what much of our education is focused on, the world. But what is that world and the study of that world telling us? Is it just telling us some nice facts about how, things, how molecules work and how various things hold together and, and how, how the world fits? No, it's telling us about God. It's revealing to us the Creator, the heavens declaring His glory. Now, we're also going to be looking at Job chapter 38. So if you want to look through Job, turn your, put one finger in Job chapter 38 and another finger in Genesis. We're going to go back and forth between these because in Job 38 through 41, God is speaking to Job and seeking to tell him about how he has manifested himself and challenging Job in his words, asking, were you there when? When what? God rebukes Job by pointing to various aspects of his creation to say that he is the one who was behind those aspects of creation. And so he is behind meteorology. So if you're going to study the weather, you're going to study the atmosphere. Genesis chapter 2, verses 5 through 6, God said it had not rained yet, but the the earth was watered potentially by some sort of mist. Later, he's going to bring rain in the book of Genesis very clearly. But in Job 38, notice verses 16 through 30. He's talking to Job and he says, Have you entered into the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of the depths been revealed to you or have you seen the gates of deep darkness? Have you understood the expanse of the earth? Tell me if you know all this. Where is the way of the dwelling of light and darkness? Where is its place? that you may take it to its territory, and that you may discern the paths of its home. You know, for you were born then, and the number of your days is great. Have you entered the storehouses of the snow? Have you seen the storehouses of the hail? While I have reserved for time of distress, for the day of war and battle? Where is the way that the light is divided and the east wind scattered on the earth? Who has cleft a channel for the flood or a way for the thunderbolt to bring rain on the land without people, on a desert without a man in it, to satisfy the waste place. You see, he's going on, and he's going to come back later in verses 34 and following to talk about how God orders all of the weather. We've got meteorologists that get it wrong all the time, and they get paid big money to do it. But God knows exactly where every snowflake is going to fall. He knows exactly when the rain is going to come and when it's going to be held back, when the hail is going to come and dent your car, and when it's going to miss and it's going to go someplace else. He knows exactly where all of that is going to happen. If we're going to treat science and the meteorology properly, we need to do it in the context of knowing that God is the one who creates and orders all of the weather. In Genesis 1, verses 16 to 18, we, we saw that God put the, 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 the sun in place and the moon in place and the stars also. And he did that, that there might be seasons and that day and night would be marked out for us. We read in Job chapter 38, verses 31 to 33, that again, Job's got, Job is put, made to see God is the one who controls and orders astronomy. 
Can you bind the chains of Pleiades or loose the cord of Orion? Can you lead forth a constellation in its season and guide the bear with her satellites? Do you know the ordinances of the heavens and fix their rule on the earth? You can't control any of these things. You study these things, I want you to know you're studying my order of time and space. Biology and zoology. Now, clearly from the book of Genesis, we saw that God created all of the animals after their kind. He created man in his own image. And in chapter 38, beginning at verse 39, all the way through uh, chapter 30, uh, end of chapter 39 and into chapter 40, we see God talking about how he is the one who knows where all these animals are. I mean, it's just, it's, it's remarkable. Look back at it. You know, we've got zoologists and zoos everywhere and they go and study all these things and they think, oh, isn't this cool? We see this animal and, and he must have come from this animal, maybe come from that animal. And, and God says, you know what? Were you there? Can, can you feed the lions out in the wilderness? You know, I take care of all those lions. I make sure they've got everything they need. And, and the raven, I make sure that that bird's got food. And the mountain goats, do you know where, where they go and where they give birth? And, and the wild ox, can, can, you, can you take care of him while out there in the wilderness? And, and how about that ostrich, that stupid bird that we talk about who doesn't take care of her young and sticks her head in the sand, as we, as we say? And God says in verse 17 of chapter 39, because God has made her forget wisdom and has not given her a share of understanding. Why does she act this way? Because God made her that way. Oh, and by the way, she's better than the horse when it comes to running. He goes on to say that. She's got her gifts. But here's the point. You see, God is involved in all this zoology, biology, and chemistry. You want to talk about chemistry? One of my fellow elders has a, has a brother-in-law who's trying to come up with a cure for cancer, and he gets asked the question, have you done anything yet? He gets chided for, for not creating any cure yet. But chemistry, wow, amazing chemistry. Can you change water into wine? Now there's chemistry for you. That's what God can do. Physics, light, and gravity. We saw that in Genesis chapter 1. Again, the planets all in their places. Why? Because, because they're held there by gravity. Well, yes, God uses all those means, but God's the one who's holding them in place. So you see the truth in science. Any place you go, any, any subject you want to study in science, any mathematical formula you want to go through, it comes back to the fact that there's a God of order who is behind it all. God who is keeping everything in its place. But also truth. So truth in science should be taught. Yes, all of these facts about biology and astronomy and, and all of these different sciences and math ought to be taught, but that to be taught in an atmosphere of the existence of God. And then with the truth of words, you know, all those liberal arts studies, poetry and great books and history, you know, that everybody wrinkles their nose up at, except for some people who love those kinds of things. But when we come to talking about words, you know, God, God really has an important role in words. He likes words. I mean, God was very much involved with uh, the fact that, there are, there's, that language exists. And so we talk about truth being taught. We need to talk about truth in words. God's words are powerful words. And God said, and it was so, is how we meet him on the first page of the pages of the Bible. 
And so these things that we've been learning in Genesis chapter 1 say, well, they need to come to us as we think about men writing down words. He speaks to his creatures. Why is it that we have this ability to speak? Because we're image bearers of God. We're like him and we have the ability to speak. We have the ability to communicate. We have the ability to reveal our hearts to one another as God revealed his heart to Adam and to Eve when he blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And when he later told them, told them, spoke to them and said, there's a tree here, don't eat of this tree. You can eat of every tree of the garden, but you may not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God is behind all these things called words. And that brings us to an important point for today. As we think of words, educating our children with words, we need to recognize words have meaning. You say, well, that's obvious. Well, that's because you're sitting here and not in a literature class in many universities around the United States. As you're sitting here and you're thinking in a, in a right way, these words actually have meaning. Yes, words sometimes have multiple meanings. And words can have, and I'm not just throwing out big words for the sake of using big words. These aren't big words in my estimation. Connotations and denotations. That is that they can have a color or a tonal quality as well as a precise literal definition. Well, what do you mean? Well, if I were to go over here to the piano and hit middle C... And if it were in tune, we would have exactly 261.625565 hertz. This tone would come out. And no matter what piano we went to and hit middle C, it would always be that same tone. It would always be the first note in the C major scale. That is a definition. That's its denotation. It is precise. It is exact. But if I go over here and on middle C, it's going to have a different sound than if Vanessa comes over here and plays a scale. That's connotation. That's going to have a different flavor to it. Or if I pick up a violin, if I could, and play a middle C, it would have a different tone to it. So I understand words have different tones. They have different connotations. They sound in a way that makes it sound it's actually bad, even though the definition is not bad. You know, we all have those kinds of things. Like some people who have pet names for their children or pet names for their family members that you think, well, that's pretty rude. But they just do it. They love one another. That's how they talk to one another. It's just they've just developed this language. And so, okay, well, it sounds a bit different to us. But when we come to this, the reason we can understand all these things is because words actually have meaning. If words didn't have meaning, we couldn't discern connotation from denotation, definition from just uh, slang usage. And yes, words can be used deceptively. They can be used as lies. But we can know lies because we know the truth. And so we, we need to, to recognize that when we're teaching literature to our children and having them read these things and try to understand them, that we're actually depending upon a God of order who speaks and makes his mind known that there really is meaning behind those words. These are not just uh, vocables that have no meaning behind them. And yes, there is something that an author had an intention that he, when he wrote it. Now, his intent may have been to deceive but he had an intention. 
I'm talking about truth. There is real truth in words. And you know it's true because the person who tells you there's no truth in words is using words. And you go, oh, I know what you're saying. You're saying there's truth in words. No, that's exactly what I'm not saying. No, but by saying that, you're... Here's the point. There's, there is truth that needs to be understood. So we're seeking to, uh, to get into the mind of another. No one knows the mind of a man save the man himself and him whom he chooses to reveal himself to. When we're reading or when we're hearing or we're studying poetry, literature, Reading, just reading in general, the ability to read is an amazing gift. To know the mind of another by being able to look at words on a page. These are gifts from God. And they only exist in a world where there is a God of truth and order behind it all. God is concerned about words. And we could go beyond that and, and talk about the fact that Job was being challenged for his words by the things that God was saying. He had spoken words without knowledge. And God is concerned about all of our words that will give account for every careless word that we speak. And so, under this point, let God be true and every man a liar. We need to recognize that there's truth and that truth is, needs to be part of our education. A good education is concerned to discern and promote the truth. However unpopular truth is, the truth that there are two genders and sex and gender are the same thing. The truth of words, marriage, means something. It's the union of one man and one woman in covenant to stay together forever. We'll come to that later tonight. But a good Christian education then requires that the instruction ultimately, pervasively, and definitively, that is, ultimately, it's always going to come to this, Pervasively, it should be throughout it. Definitively, it should really stand upon this, that is, permeated by the knowledge of the God of truth. A good Christian education, hear me carefully, is not achieved merely by having a Bible curriculum and having specific times set aside for Bible education like chapel or family worship. Did you hear what I said? I didn't say you wish, oh, chapel shouldn't have chapel. No, I didn't say that. I chose my words carefully. A good Christian education is not achieved merely by having a Bible curriculum or having specific time set aside for biblical instruction, that is, chapel or family worship. A good Christian education is one in which every aspect of the instruction ultimately, pervasively, and definitively rests upon, is permeated by, and points to God and His truth. And that ultimately then is going to have put Christ front and center because Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So what does that require of those of us who are parents, teachers, administrators, board members? 
requires that either teachers or curriculum are present that have this kind of permeated truth through them, this truth permeating them. It requires that teachers either be masters of the field or sufficient resources to achieve a level of mastery above their students. It requires an educator must know the truth in order to impart the truth. If you don't know God, you can't impart truth about God. This requires hard work on the part of every educator. And it requires funds to pay an educator capable of doing that or to purchase curriculum capable of being able to direct that education. Truth is central. Second, goodness. Goodness. Another question that's asked, it's the psalmist in Psalm 4 who asks it, who will show us any good in a world that's falling apart? The foundations are being eroded. Who will show us any good? Well, we've already seen that, haven't we? Genesis chapters 1 and 2. Suffused with the goodness of God. Everywhere you look in Genesis chapter 1, everywhere you look in Genesis chapter 2, we see a good God at work. And the result should be that we should praise Him. There should be glory given to Him, an acknowledgement of this goodness that He has given. Something which is noted about Him. Psalm 148, verse 13. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for His name alone is exalted. His glory is above earth and heaven. Or Psalm 8 and verse 1, we sang in that hymn, I almost tempted to ask you, how many of you know where, what psalm we, we sang this morning when we sang psalm, hymn number 107? Well, Psalm 8, O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth, who has displayed, who have displayed your splendor above the heavens. God's goodness is over the entirety of Genesis, and it's to produce this recognition of what he is and what he has done. It's to produce praise and adoration for him. But goodness here, in this particular point, is not so much addressing goodness in terms of the blessings and, 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 and kindnesses of God. Right? By goodness, I'm talking about moral goodness. That which uh, is, is found in Philippians chapter 4 and verse 8. He says that we are to fix our minds on that which is true. And then he goes on with these things that talk about goodness. That which is honorable or noble. That which is right or pure. So we're talking particularly here under this point that a good Christian education should be marked not only by truth, but by an emphasis on what is good ethically. Or as God says through Micah the prophet in Micah 6 and verse 8. He has told you, O man, what is good. Well, what's he going to say? Well, he's going to tell us what he means. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly before your God? Here is the good that man is supposed to do. He is supposed to be one who is just in his dealings with mankind. He is one who is to show kindness and even love showing kindness and displaying that kindness. And he is to walk in humility, a pious humility under the eye of God. This is what good means. And that's what I mean by this particular point. 
and what is often meant by this particular point. A good Christian education is one which emphasizes not merely truth, but moral character. Remember back in Genesis chapter 1, the God who is good, what did he do? Well, he created everything and it was good, right? But he no sooner created it than he starts evaluating it. And he says, this is good, this is good, this is good, that's not. So there's a definite evaluation. But then in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 28, he actually then gives exhortations. He says, God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and the sky and over everything, every living thing that moves on the earth. He started giving commands. He no sooner creates than he commands. He starts requiring. And this is the goodness that he requires of them. And then we're going to see in coming weeks in Genesis chapter 2, that right in the heart of all this, God puts a moral issue. And he puts a tree. It's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And right in the midst of all of this, he's going to say, here is a moral issue, because I am a moral God, and you are moral creatures. And they are to discern good and evil. That's what I mean by goodness. A Christian education is to be marked by this kind of goodness, a discerning of good and evil. Which is really just another way of saying maturity. We're to be engaged with seeking to have our students mature, to grow in their understanding of the world and being able to discern what's good and what's evil, what's right and what's wrong. <clears throat> Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 14 says, solid food is for the mature. What do you mean? He says, is he talking about steak? No, he says, that's a metaphor, or he's making, or simile, it's a metaphor, who, because of practice, have their senses trained to discern good and evil. So the mature is the one who can discern good and evil. So what God is doing for his children in Genesis is he's teaching them good and evil. He wants them to, to understand that. Our education should emphasize that. Now, I don't like going to secular sources for my material for, for sermons. Um, but I went to these sources. I found these, these things that people were summarizing. But they're really summarizing biblical truth. Turn with me to Philippians chapter 4. What is it that God wants us to focus our minds upon? And so in education, what should be working to focus the minds of our pupils upon? Philippians chapter 4. I quoted this a little bit ago, referenced it, beginning at verse 8, or just verse 8, really. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence or anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. So we turn to the book of Genesis, and what did we see? We saw that there's truth there, God establishing reality. We look at, book, at the book of Genesis, and we saw God establishing order, and, and what was good, what was right, what was wrong, everything being in its proper place, giving directions to man. Now we come to, to Paul's words as he's speaking to these Christians, and he wants them to grow up. And what does he tell them they need to do? They need to fix their minds in a certain place. So if we're trying to see our students mature, not just imparting knowledge to them, we're actually then seeking to help them live a life which is marked by that which is honorable. 
Now, the word honorable means noble, dignified, worthy of respect. The word honorable means a manner or mode of behavior that indicates one is above what is ordinary and therefore worthy of special respect. But he goes on and says, not only honorable, but what is right. And that's the standard word for uh, righteousness, or or it's related to the word for righteousness. So he's saying, we're to fix our minds on that which is righteous, that which is defined by God's character and God's law. It's not just truth, it's how we ought to live. And then he talks about being pure, not having any mixture. We're to, we're to have this, our minds fixed on this, that there's, we're to find what is pure, not what is error, what is, what is good and what not, is, not what is wrong. You see, what Paul is doing is Paul is, is not promoting a mere occupation with some, what do I want to say, philosophical ideals. Paul is saying, I want you to think upon these things because this is how I want you to live. I want you to character to be shaped by these things. You know, the thing that we look at is the thing we become. Thus, we're to look at the face of Christ and from glory to glory be transformed. So we're to have our students be looking at these kinds of realities, what honor is, what righteousness is, what purity is. I love this word, honorable. It really comes to the heart of the things. The fact of the matter is that it's somebody who is, is dignified, somebody who is looked up to, somebody who is, it's the kind of person you want to get next to and hope something rubs off on you. That's the kind of person he's talking about. That's the kind of character we should be looking for. The truth that we impart is truth which is according to godliness. It should produce a godly life. So the goal of our educating of our, of our children must never be bare truth. We must aim at good character. We must avoid mere pragmatism. Our aim should be higher than preparing our students and children for the highest paying jobs when they get done. We should be developing them, as one man said, to be good citizens in two kingdoms. This kingdom and the kingdom of heaven. We should be developing that character to make them stand out, not merely as politicians, but as statesmen. Not merely as philosophers, but theologians. We need to teach them to think, to use the minds that God has given them, which are capable of grasping great thoughts. We should teach them to think so that they can contemplate these grand realities that we see in Genesis chapter 1 and apply them to their lives on a daily basis and live in the fear of this God. We need to seek to mold their character. And so what does this take? Not just a good curriculum. It takes exemplary, parent, exemplary parents, exemplary teachers. Exemplary educators, administrators, board members living out this kind of life in front of them. Because the disciple becomes like their master. Truth, goodness, and beauty. My final point, beauty. A good Christian education is not only marked... By truth and moral goodness, it should be marked by beauty. Now, I, I, came across, I have to say, I came across that and said, beauty? Really? Does that really fit in? And you start reading some of these, these different articles and different books, and what you come up with is it's beauty. They start talking about art. You should have art 
in your program. Yes, we should have art, real art. And if you look at the walls over there at Trinity Christian School, you see the one, these, these kids are learning how to look at a world and then translate that into something that goes on paper or something that, that is made out of uh, some other material. But it's just remarkable that they can do that. I can't draw a straight line with a ruler. But they're just, they're just, they're taking this and they say, this is an amazing gift. God created all this and they can actually now look at that and, and as it were, recreate something of that in their ability to draw or their ability to paint or their ability to take pictures. And certainly that's part of this. And, and I love it. Oh, the chapel this year has been a real blessing. And you know why? Because they're singing and I can't hear myself. I can usually sing louder than the hundred of them standing there in front of me. But they're not. They're singing to the glory of God. That's a gift. That's part of this art. And it's singing. It's not screaming. There's a difference. I won't demonstrate. I don't think I need to. We've lost what poetry is. We've, we've, we've lost what music is because we've lost some of the characteristics that I think are fundamental to what music really is. We've lost something of order. We've lost something of rhyme. We've lost something of direction. And now music is just any old notes we want to throw out there, and anything we want to bang out. No, music is meant to be God-glorifying, and it's meant to be true. But come back to me with me and to notice what Paul says in Philippians, because remember we said, where is he supposed to fix our where are we supposed to fix our minds? Well, that's where we ought to be seeking to fix the minds of our students and our pupils. On whatsoever is true, there's our first point. Second point, whatever is honorable, right, and pure, there's the goodness, according to God's law, according to his standards. And then whatever is lovely, of good report, and of excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. And there's our beauty. The word lovely, it's only used here. It's a word which means it's that which grace attracts, one man said. Loveliness is, is things being in place, in order, proper proportion, something which is dear to us. You wouldn't go into my study and look at my desk right now and say, oh, that's a lovely place. But you might go to many other places in my house where my wife spends more of her time. You go, that's a lovely place because everything's in its place. Everything's ordered properly. Didn't we see that in the book of Genesis? We picked up the book of Genesis and what did we find? Orderliness, beauty all over the place. And then there's that which is of good repute. It's commendable. It's worthy of reporting. This is the kind of thing you want to put on the news. You know, now they just have a little segment now for some good news. Right? But this, this which is a good report, is saying, I'm looking at that and saying, yes, that's the kind of thing I want to see and I want to talk about. We're a society that spends so much time talking about the ugly, the painful, and the grim. Because we have so much information blasting at us at all times. But isn't it so much more wonderful when you hear somebody say, not somebody's dying of cancer, but a baby was born? Or not that there was earthquake and people dying, but there was hospitals that were built and places that, where there's, there's been new finds of, of jewels or gems where you go, oh, that's good news. That which is of moral excellence and that which is praiseworthy. 
This is what's lovely. And from the very beginning, when God created the trees, I love that little phrase that, that God had Moses put in. He says, out of the ground, Yahweh God caused to grow every tree that is pleasing to the sight. He didn't have to do that, but he did. Look at that, oh man, that, you ever seen a, a, a lemon tree with just lemons all around? It's beautiful, yellows. Some people would say that's true of avocado trees. Yeah, okay. <laughs> you know, but there's, it's just, it's beautiful. And God did that. He says, this is pleasing to the eyes. Now, Eve perverted that because she saw that the tree, and he uses the same word, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, was pleasing to the sight, desirable to make one wise. And she desired something she shouldn't. But this word desirable speaks of gold in Psalm 19. You see, beauty is important, isn't it? Beauty is that attractiveness, that which draws our attention, grabs us, and grabs us at the point of our desires and our affections. But here's the problem. The problem is we live in a world where people desire what is forbidden, like Eve. Or they desire that which is ugly. They, they desire and, and, and elevate ugliness. Proverbs 1 and verse 22. How long, O oh naive ones, will you love being simple-minded? And scoffers delight themselves in scoffing. Fools hate knowledge. You see, we, we, we hate what we should love and we love what we should hate. It's Isaiah 5.20 all over the place, isn't it? That, that, that we substitute evil, we call evil good and good evil. We substitute darkness for light and light for darkness and substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. We're getting everything mixed up. We go off into our relativistic world and ugliness being promoted. Men love darkness. See, the problem is that the philosophy behind the world education has perverted us. Because modernism says that we are just atoms of matter randomly bouncing around without purpose and without direction. We're just evolved and evolving animals. We're living machines merely responding to external stimuli and, and acting in a way according to that stimulus. So there's no purpose, there's no real thought, there's no mind, there's no affection that we can actually direct. The postmodernist comes along and he says, no, that's not true. Humans are merely socially constructed selves with no reference to objective reality except insofar as being oppressed or you are being an oppressor. That's all there is. So where's beauty in that? There's no beauty in that. It's only when we come to God's worldview that we begin to see order, and blessing, and joy, and, and beauty. Man is made as an image bearer of God to be able to think, evaluate, choose, feel, and desire. That's the students that we have in front of them. We need to direct their desires toward that which is good and beautiful.
We need to set before them the truth in such a way that it attracts their attention and they can use their minds to, to study further and to know better the world that's around them, to discern right and wrong. Why? Because it is good to do so. It is right to do so, but it is also beautiful to do so. We need to teach them to understand the difference between beauty and ugliness. And bottom line is this. God's truth is beautiful. The Lord Jesus Christ, though he had no personal appearance that was the macho man that everybody should look upon, yet he is the loveliest one. He is the fairer than 10,000. He is the beautiful groom who comes to take, the, the king who comes to take his bride. So we need to set this before our students and make sure that they understand the beauty of God's word. We're to worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Holiness is beauty. And we're to teach our students that holiness is beauty in their lives, not just on the, the Lord's day or in the public worship. So the teacher and the parent must not only be a master of his or her material, but must be mastered by it. Not just a master of the material, but mastered by it to the point where they can present it enthusiastically because they love it. And they want their students not just to know it, but to love it. You know what? I'd love to come to the end of a year, school year, and have, it, have the difficulty of, of giving an award to your students because they were all so exceptional they loved everything about it. You're trying to, to get them to appreciate and love this world that God has ordered and the truth that's behind it. And so a teacher must exhibit, a parent must exhibit a lively, lovely godliness. One of my students, one of my, yeah, one of my students uh, was on a college campus relating this to me and they were sitting down with with a couple of professors uh, about a project that was paper that was being written and and one of the professors says oh those dour calvinists we're all sinners no 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 you got it all wrong because it's not that we're dour sinner dour calvinists because we believe every man is sinners but we're gloriously joyful of the fact that we have a Savior that came into the world to save such sinners. So the truth is to be presented with a, with a delightfulness in it, not a, not a downer in it. It's, it's, it's glorious. It's, it's beautiful to see the order that God has given to everything. It's beautiful to know that God rules over all. This is, these are the marks of what I'd say is this, this morning, three important marks of every good Christian education. So I ask you, is this what you want for your children? Is this what we're aiming at for our children? I believe this is something of what Trinity Christian School is seeking to impart to the children. And those who are homeschooling, this is what we need to impart to our children. I believe that's the goal of these, at least these three things, right? Truth. We want to give them truth. We want them to know the facts. We want them to understand the way that God had ordered this world. But then we also want them to know goodness. That is, we want to live moral, upright, honorable lives. And thirdly, we want them to see beauty in it. We want that to attract them to this education. 
want them to be attracted to their professors and their teachers and their parents because their, because their godliness is joyful. It's enthusiastic. They should want to be Christians because look at what it's done for mom and dad. Look at what it's done for my teachers. Look at how it's given them some joy and delight in their responsibilities. If your goal is anything less, I believe you're falling short of the biblical standard for a good Christian education. We need to strive to impart to them the truth of God, which we ourselves have embraced, to shape them according to the goodness of God, which we ourselves exemplify, and to entice them with the beauty of godliness in a world, in word, and in life. Well, who is sufficient for these things? Well, thanks be to God that Jesus Christ, who is the perfect example of every one of these things, he is the truth. He is pure righteousness, and he is the upright one, and he is the loveliest of lovely. That this one is to be center in our lives and in our education. Not just, again, in some Bible curriculum or just in chapel, but permeating everything we live before our students. May God help us. May God help us to join our hands together and bear one another's burdens as we seek to see one another generation raised up to glorify this gracious and glorious God. I want to finish by reading a quote from a postmodernist. I don't generally do that. But listen to this man. This was his final conclusion to his article on education. Now, remember, postmodernists believe that there's no absolute truth there's no meta-narrative that tells the whole story for everything. So education is just kind of a hodgepodge. But this is what he says. We have to revisit things like truth, beauty, and goodness all the time. What would a world be like where no one had any agreement about truth, where there were no longer any experiences that people called beautiful, and where good and bad were indistinguishable? See, he sees the problem, but he's missed the answer. It's here in the God of this book and in his beloved son, Jesus Christ. So may God continue to bless everyone involved in educating children in this place. Let's pray. God in heaven, we plead with you that you would guide and direct us. That we would live this way, that truth would be important to us, that righteousness would be important to us, and that living a lovely, godly life would be important to us, that we might impart these things to others. Lord, help those who are training up children, parents, teachers, administrators, board members. Give them grace to achieve a goal which is pleasing to you, the God of heaven. And help us all to bear one another's burdens and thus fulfill the law of Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.